and that this Sunday kicks off for us what is traditionally known as Holy Week. So this is the Sunday uh, for generations where the church has celebrated what is called Palm Sunday. And I'm going to work that into Ruth this morning, and uh, I just want to give a little bit of background on Palm Sunday and what it means to us. Uh, It is the day in which Jesus uh, is essentially coronated as king by riding in on a donkey to Jerusalem. And in riding into Jerusalem, all of the Gospels tell us that he was setting his face to Jerusalem to head to the cross, to die on the cross, the death that we rightly deserve, and then to be resurrected from the dead, which we'll celebrate on Sunday. So, so today's a big Sunday for us as a church in that we celebrate Palm Sunday, Jesus being coronated as our Messiah, as our King, and then Friday's a big day. It's called Good Friday, even though it was a horrible Friday for him. It's a Good Friday for us and where he dies, and then Sunday is Easter where we celebrate the resurrection. The Jews actually celebrate Palm Sunday. They don't call it Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of their Passover uh, where they do two things, uh, which is really true about most things biblically. Uh, it's true. What I'm about to tell you is true of baptism. It's true of communion. And it, it, it's true in that usually there's a looking backward and a looking forward. And this will tie in even to the message this morning. Looking backward, the Jews celebrated the reality that God, through Moses, Uh, freed the people of Israel from slavery with Pharaoh and all of that which they went through uh, in Egypt. Uh, And then they look forward to, they still celebrate during the Passover, the hopes of the Messiah. Many Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're hoping that the Messiah will come to free them from uh, all all that the world is oppressive over them and all of that. So they're, they're celebrating the physical freedom from Pharaoh and then a spiritual freedom that will come with the Messiah. Now, you and I, we know that we celebrate that Jesus is the one that has freed us from the slavery of sin. So, so we recognize that what God did with the people of Israel, uh, it was a physical thing, a foreshadowing, a real thing that happened, but a foreshadowing of what actually occurs spiritually. Satan is like Pharaoh. Uh, Moses is like Jesus. Jesus is the better Moses, and Jesus comes Uh, as Moses came, and he has freed us, liberated us from the slavery of sin. And that's what what, uh, we celebrate. So there's a looking backward for us. We thank God that he sent Jesus to free us, just as Moses was freed, uh, freed from Egypt, or the people were freed through Moses through Egypt. And then we also look forward to, uh, well, we celebrate the reality of what has come, that Jesus has indeed accomplished what he set forth. And then we're also still looking forward, are we not? That, that there will be a day where this earth will cease to exist and Jerusalem will come down and a new earth and a new heaven will be created for us and we will celebrate and enjoy life together with no sin and no pain. Anyone looking forward to that? Okay. My mom just had a knee replacement. She is looking forward to a new body. Uh, I feel like our church is, uh, goes through knee replacements as, just as often as we have babies in church. It's kind of a big deal. How many have had a knee replacement in the last year? There's like, see, left five hands went up. That's ridiculous, man. We're handing out knees like crazy at Tall Force Hospital. Okay. <clears throat> you get a knee. You get a Oh, that's so dumb. Okay. Now, Ruth, if you will recall from last week, my, you know, as a pastor, I'm an easy target for two things. I'm an easy target for praise and I'm an easy target for criticism. Uh, and so people will say things that I don't 
uh, deserve to be said to me in a way that is, is very celebratory and kind and gracious. And, and then every now and then people will tell me that I could do a better job. And uh, uh, one of those individuals that actually doesn't say that much to me after a Sunday is my wife. And because um, she knows it hurts more when she says something, right? And so last week she said, man, the message last week, this is what she told me. She said, she said that was in your top five messages I've ever heard you preach. So it was really nice of my wife to say. And, and so she wanted me to tell you that if you missed the message, you should go look it up at YouTube and listen in. And, and, uh, and then someone this morning told me, no, 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 this message this morning was in your top five. And uh, it's, just, it's just funny for me to hear these things. And Wayne knows I struggle with it. I, I just want people to say Jesus is good after every service and just be done with it. Um, and, uh, and so this morning, you know, tying into last week, we saw that the decision that Elimelech made with his wife, Naomi, to move to Moab was a decision that was not a good decision. Moab was considered an evil place. It was a pagan place. They believed in a god by the name of Elimelech, uh, which was a a god that required human sacrifice, child sacrifice at its worst. Uh, Moab was not a good place. They were constantly oppressing Israel and against Israel. And remember now that Elimelech and Ruth, uh, I'm sorry, not Ruth, Naomi, moved from Bethlehem, the place of bread. So there was a famine in Bethlehem, and instead of enduring the famine, seeking God in the famine, and asking God to provide in that famine, they, they made their own decision to, to leave without inquiring from God and getting counsel from God to move to this very evil place. And we saw in the first five verses of Ruth that the results were catastrophic. Uh, Ruth uh, comes into the scene later, but before that, Elimelech dies. Uh, once Elimelech has died, their two sons marry Moabite women, which we know they were not to do. Moabite women uh, believed in another god, so there was an intermarriage there that should not have happened. And then the two sons die. And then Naomi uh, is left within Moab. She's in Moab for 10 years. And I, I, I positioned the message last week, revolved it around last week. What, number one, what's the famine in your life? What is the thing that you're dealing with? What's the struggle that you have? What challenges exist in your life? What sins do you have in your life? And how could you be possibly handling them in a way that you're not inquiring of God and you're not waiting on God, but instead you're trying to do it on your own? Because whenever we try to deal with our issues on our own, they, they end in catastrophe. They end with, with dire consequences. We end up going further down that rabbit hole instead of getting to the resurrection that we want to get to. And one of the things I mentioned last week was when we're dealing with our issues, we should never leave Bethlehem. We should never leave the place of bread. And I use that as an image of Bethlehem as being the place uh, that represents for us the gospel, that we continue in our issues to drive back into Jesus, to stay with Jesus, to stick with Jesus, and to stick with Scripture and those things that we know are important. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to see uh, a couple major, we're really going to revolve ourselves around two major theological points that if you're a Christian this morning, you, you want to know these things. And if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're here, and you're wondering and seeking who Jesus is, you're going to learn some very key things uh, about God, some key things that, that Christians believe in that bring a greater peace to our life. And so this morning, if you're able to, uh, would you follow our tradition of honoring God's Word and stand with me as we read from Ruth chapter 1, and we pick up this short story in verse 6, after Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons 
and now she is left with just two daughter-in-laws. Verse 6, Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the, on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I pray, Lord, that you'd use this short story to echo into our hearts the reality, Lord, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you are completely for us, Lord. Bring this truth and reality into our hearts in a way that transforms us into the likeness and image of our Savior. And we trust you and your Holy Spirit for that work, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. So the narrator of this book, the writer of this book who eludes us, we don't know the author, has sketched a gloomy, uh, gloomy, a gloomy, hopeless setting for the tale. Driven from her homeland by famine, cruelly robbed of her loved ones by death, a now lonely old widow sits abandoned in a foreign land. What's worse, one of Israel's family units totters on the verge of extinction. Inheritance is a big deal to the Israelites. It's a big deal to the Christian. It's a big deal in that in this day, when you were married, you would hope and desire to have a son. And having a son, the family name, family tradition, faith, all of that would transfer to the son, as, as well as all of your belongings and inheritance. It was a way of, of, of pointing towards eternity. In that, we see the same kind of practice within the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born of God the Father, and God the Father gives the inheritance to the son, and then the son gives us the inheritance of God. We are now children of God. We become children of God through Christ receiving all the inheritance, uh, inheritances of God, peace, joy, heaven itself, all of that. So this is a big deal. And she's here without any child, no grandchildren, two widows. It's a horrible situation. And up to this point, God has not been mentioned. We just know from some background history that they're making a decision to go to Moab, which isn't healthy, and they've been there for 10 years. 10 years was the custom for Israelites, that if you didn't have children within 10 years, you could use some extreme uh, you know, way to, to have children. Thus, the story of Abraham and Sarah takes place, where God came to Abraham, said, you'll have children. They said, we're too old to have children. He said, nope, you're going to have children. 10 years goes by, they don't have children. And so Sarah says to her husband, sleep with my handmaiden so we can have a child, and then that will be our child that they will have the inheritance. Now, that was taking it into their own hands, just as Elimelech has taken things into his own hands, again, with dire consequences. Verse 6 now is a pivot in the story. It's, it's a returning 
back to the idea of God. Ten years has gone by, and in verse 6, Naomi now says, after hearing of news, she, she's obviously still in connection with what's happening in Bethlehem. And so from the fields of Moab, she's in Moab, gleaning from the fields of Moab, getting food from the fields of Moab. She's in what the Bible calls the God's wash basin. That's what Moab is called in the Bible, God's wash basin. It's a nice way of saying it's a bathroom. It's a toilet. Moab is not a good place. She's been there for 10 years, 10 years in a pagan land, 10 years of gleaning from fields, 10 years of poverty, 10 years of struggle. And now in verse 6, she, she hears news, good news, that in Bethlehem, David's city, God's city, that the food is returned. And now for the first time, we see her becoming God conscious again. 10 years, I, wa- I want you to understand something. She's gone 10 years without knowing or not seeking God. 10 years without praise. 10 years without prayer. 10 years of depression. 10 years of anxiety. And now she finally is in a place where she says, I've got to go back home. Now, could it be possible that some of us have dealt with the same issue for a long period of time because we simply just haven't returned as we should have, as soon as we should have? She could have gone back sooner, but she didn't. This is literally a place in the Old Testament where we see the practice. Here's the first theological thing we're going to dive into this morning of repentance. She's becoming God-conscious again. Now, let me, let me just say a couple things here. One, one would be, I would pray that whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever your sins you're dealing with, whatever depression you're t- dealing with, that you would not wait 10 years to become God-conscious again. The second thing I, w- I would say is, how good and gracious is God that even after 10 years, He still can bring God-consciousness into somebody? How beautiful is it that, that you can go that long, and God eventually is still going to get you, and He's still going to awaken you? You know, there's the, 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 um, we, think, we think about Easter here for a moment and how many people will come to church that either haven't been in church or never been to church uh, in forever, right? They've never been or, or they, they, have, they only go a couple times a year. There's a statistic, I can't, don't quote me on it, but it's that there's more people don't go to church just simply because no one's actually invited them to go. Do you know how much power you have in an invitation? And I'll hear people leaving the community, oh, I'm a Christian, where do you go to church? I haven't been going lately. Well, why? Uh, no one's invited me, and I just haven't had the guts to go check one out. You know that's a reality that occurs in our town? So there's a lot more people in Truckee who claim to know Jesus who don't go to church, and through your invitation, they would come. And it may take years for them to get there. Years. And I've seen this. I've seen people reawakened after a period of time, and, and they come back to faith, and they become re. Some of you might even be in that place right now where you're, you're just waiting to be awakened, your faith to be awakened, and we know that God can do that. When we think of repentance and what's happening here, there, there's a couple things that, that we need to understand about what it is. Repentance is, is becoming God-conscious in regards to certain things. And repentance always deals with two major issues. It's, it's one, it's turning away from something, and then it's turning to something. Are you with me? So you're saying no to a certain aspect and yes to something else. It's never just no. And, and when, we, when we, we as Christians, when we talk about repentance, we have to understand that repentance isn't a one-time act as a Christian. Okay, do you remember? I know when I was a kid, the big thing was, the big thing was, 
that you would go to a, a big event, like a Billy Graham event, and, and Billy Graham would, would say the same thing he says at every event about Jesus, tie it in with a modern-day story, move everyone's heart, and people would go down, and they'd do the altar call, and you get saved, and you say a prayer. Anybody do that? How many of you have ever walked down to a Billy Graham thing? I've been to like two of them, and I think I walked twice. I needed it, apparently. And <clears throat> when he talked about repentance, oftentimes what, happened in, what happens in a lot of Christians when they think of repentance, now again, this is, this is key to becoming a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you have to repent. You have to actually change your thinking and change your mind, okay, about certain things and turn to something. So there's this initial repentance that's taught. Now, what we believe is, first of all, you can't repent unless God brings God consciousness to you, right? We have to, we have to trust the Holy Spirit to awaken the heart to get us to understand who God is. No one can say that God is the Messiah unless the Spirit helps them do that, right? So when we ask God, we say, Lord, we want you to save people. We want you to bring people to Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen until God says, wake up. And then once you're awake, guess what? You can't go back to sleep. Spiritually, it's impossible. That's why we teach you can't lose your salvation because you can't lose something that you didn't earn and that was given to you for free, okay? So you get it, you get it, and then when you become a Christian, repentance is an ongoing, life-giving thing that you have to do monthly, weekly, daily, and even hourly. <laughs> Minutely, or secondly, we'll just keep shrinking it down for Bob over there. <laughs> Martin Luther said, the life of a believer is a life of repentance. If you are a Christian this morning, you should be defined with a repentant attitude. Let me give you some uh, great uh, theological Puritan-type, older-type, dead-type people who have talked about repentance in a better way than I can. They are. A lot of those dead people are very intelligent. They got smarter when they died, too, which is crazy. Yeah. Puritan Thomas Watson said, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner inwardly humbles, is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. In his definition, notice the word grace by God's Spirit, which is what I alluded to earlier. God gives this as a gift. Then the ability comes. Spurgeon defines it like this. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. J.I. Packer says it like this. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has been enlarged. Notice the ongoing effect. He's saying, you know what essentially what he's alluding to is he's saying, you have to repent of the sin you know because you can't repent of the sin you don't know. He's saying that there's sin in our lives that you have that you're not even aware of. You can't repent of that, but it's there, okay? Every one of us in this room sins in ways we're not conscious of. Just sit on that for a moment. It's kind of a scary thought. 
You reject God in ways you're not even aware of. You can't repent of that. So what he's saying is as you grow in your life, as you're growing in your spiritual relationship with God, those things will become aware to you. And as they become aware to you, then you have to work on those things because of God's grace, because of what God has done. And you literally say, I'm not going to think this way way anymore. I'm going to now think this way. And not only that, there's two parts to repentance. It's the, the repentance of thinking in a way that's not good and acting in a way that's not good. And thinking in a way that's not godly, thinking in a way that's not Christian, thinking in a way that's not honorable to God, thinking in a way that's self-destructive, and turning in our minds and saying, I'm going to think in a way that's honorable to God, I'm going to think in a way that brings me joy, I'm going to think in a way that helps me live a life that God called me to live, and then I'm also, in addition to that, I'm going to change the behavior. The mind and the heart have to change first, because if you just change behavior, you haven't changed anything. God's always looking inward toward you. So what this means is when somebody comes up to you and they say, you know what, I think you're this way, and you're not even aware of it, you just say, oh, I'm not even dealing with that right now. I'm dealing with something else. This gets played out in marriage, <laughs> doesn't it? When, you, when, you, when you're married to your wife or your husband, and they, your husband and your wife tell you that you need to work on something, and you haven't been aware of it for the last 15 years, you're like, God's not working on that on me right now. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you, you go, okay, i got to start working on that. Like, I, I tell people, like, the great crucible, the great sanctification, the great hammer of change for the Christian it, is marriage. It really is. Some of you who are single and you want to get married, just listen to me very carefully here <laughs> so you can make a good, sound decision for your future. Okay? Those of you who have been single for a long time, The Bible says singlehood is a gift, and when you're single, you can focus on nothing but the Lord. And those of you who are single should be like, amen, right? And those of you who are married, just don't say anything because you might be murdered after the service if your spouse is sitting next to you, right? Say it's it's a sanctifier, man. What happens, I remember when I went through premarital counseling over 15 years ago, and the the pastor told me, you're going to see yourself more clearly. And nothing in marriage, I'm sorry, marriage has a way of just showing you that you're a sinner in a way that it didn't show you when you weren't married. Okay, now that's the great hammer. Now the great machine of sanctification after, after marriage is kids. Like marriage, marriage will wreck you in regards to showing you your sin, and kids will, 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 they'll do something to your heart, man. Your love increases, your desire to, to do the right things increase, but then you see, as the father, you see the selfishness that exists in you. And, and when you have those things in your life, right, when I got married, God brought awareness to me of certain sins in my life I wasn't aware of as a single person. Then when he brought kids in my life, he did the same thing. Ministry has done that over the years. Friendships have done that over the years. God has a way of revealing to us the Moab-type stuff that's in our hearts, the washbasin kind of stuff that's in our hearts. And when it comes, when it comes, we have to repent of that stuff, recognize it, not be defined by it, not be depressed over it, not be anxious over it, but start to work on it. When God reveals something to you in your life, it isn't meant to crush you. God doesn't tell you you're a sinner to beat you up. He doesn't tell you because he doesn't like you and he thinks you're a horrible person. In fact, that'll only make things worse. There's a great picture 
of how much God loves within repentance, cares within repentance, and works within repentance in the Bible from Luke chapter 15. If you want, you can turn there in the Gospels where Jesus shares this beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 verse 4. Jesus says this, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he, if you jump to verse 17, because from 7 to 17, he shares the story of the prodigal son. Remember, inheritance is a big deal. The, the prodigal son has a good dad, and the good dad is provide for his children. And now that the son is older, he says, Dad, I don't want to wait till you die. I want your inheritance now. I'm sure the father said to himself, I've done a great job raising you. <laughs> and the father, being the kind of dad he is, uh, in the parable, he gives the son the inheritance. The son goes and he spends the inheritance on women and food and alcohol, and he wastes it all the way it's gone. Right? He's like the lotto winner, who, lotto winner who goes down to Vegas after winning several million dollars only to lose it all within a few days. Every sin, every fleshly desire, I'm sure uh, it's just alluded to uh, within the text that, that he says yes to all of it. He doesn't say no to anything. He finds himself in a pig's pen, bloodied up, muddied up, beat up, in poverty, without any money, without any family. And it tells us in the rest of the text in verse 17, when he came, but when he came to himself, translation, when he sobered up, right, when he got rid of the hangover, he thought to himself, how many of my hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? So now the son collaborates within his mind. He says, he says, my dad's back over there. He has all of these servants who've got now, now the servants, now the slaves have better housing and better food than I have. And so imagine now this son who had a loving father who blew his inheritance is now walking back to his dad's house. And as he's walking, he's running through his mind. Okay, I'm going to go to my dad and I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say to him, and this is his plan. It's, it's better for me to be a servant. I will come back home and I will be a slave and I will serve you and I'll live amongst the slaves. I don't have to be a son anymore. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to be a slave. That's his plan. And it's a good plan, if you ask me. He's screwed up. You don't deserve your room. You don't get your room back. Right? It's like a kid who goes to college, doesn't graduate, comes back and says he wants his room. And you're like, too late. Turn it into an office. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what you would expect within the story. But instead, as he creeps over the horizon, the father is sitting on the deck and he sees his son from a distance. And he runs to the prodigal, runs to him. And instead of, but the, the son doesn't even have a chance to get words out of his mouth. He can't say, I'm sorry. He can't ask for forgiveness. And the father just runs to him. He embraces him. He takes off his cloak, which is a picture of taking off his inheritance again. And he puts it over the son. 
which is essentially saying, I give you back your identity as my child. Then he takes them home and he throws them a huge party. Good food, good celebration, good fellowship. You know, it's the only time in the Bible, just so you understand, it's a picture of God with his people. God is, God is not sitting there going, you know what, man? I'm going to sit on my deck. I'm going to grab my glass of whiskey. I'm going to smoke a cigar. I'm going to wait for you to come up to the house, bow down to my feet, and get your life together. And then I'm going to point my finger at you. I'm going to tell you all the ways that you messed up and you should have known better. Now get inside and start washing the dishes. No, 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 no. That's not the kind of God we have. No, he's anticipating. And as soon as he sees you take one step, he runs to you. It's the only time in the Bible where we see God in a picture of being in a hurry. It's the only time in the biblical text where we see God is in a rush. He's running. And here's, here's the deal, my friends. When you finally repent of that thing and you stop living life your way, God will not just sit back and wait for you to come. He will run back to you. He will embrace you. Remember, we saw Naomi. She lost her identity. She was a mother and she was a wife. And her name was Naomi. And last week we saw in the text that she becomes just the woman. And as she's getting ready to return to Moab, she's going to get her identity back. She's going to get her blessings back. This is, again, a pivot in the story. It's the only time now so far that we see in verse 6 where God is now mentioned as being active in the story. Now, with repentance, God uses two things in our lives to bring us to a place of a change of mind, to a change of behavior. One is God well used, and we have seen this throughout the Bible, affliction under repentance. I mean, it's it's funny that, that, that we have this great good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even for the most mature of us, God has to use affliction to get us to actually start crying out to God. Right? Everything will go well. Your prayer life will be like, uh, you don't read your Bible. And then all of a sudden something bad happens. What do you do? You cry out. They say, right, there's no such thing as a martyr in a foxhole. When, when things press up against you, God will use affliction. In fact, the psalmist says in verse 119, chapter 119, verse 67 of Psalms, before I was afflicted, he says, I went astray. When everything was going well, I did my own thing. That's what he's saying. But after the affliction came, he says, that now, now I keep your word. So here's the deal. God loves you enough not to leave you where you are. So guess what? He'll use sickness in your life to bring you to repentance, to bring you back to himself. He'll have a girl break up with you. You know, that's the story of some of the dudes in our church. We've had some dudes who walked in depressed and sad because a girl broke up with them. Sat down on the back all pouty. Does God really love me? Only to find salvation. It's a true story. It's funny, but it's true. I actually sometimes pray for single dudes in the community. Lord, I pray that they get into a relationship with a girl, and they love her, and she's just like super hot, and then, they, and then she dumps them. <laughs> because then they come to church, and they're like, man, I just... Right? Nothing makes a, a young, tough, single guy cry like getting dumped. <laughs> and any dude in the room that's had that happen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My wife, I, I haven't told this story a lot, my wife 
dumped me when we were dating. Yeah, yeah, I cried. I didn't let her see it. I cried in the shower by myself. <laughs> God uses affliction. Is it possible this morning that, that your personal affliction is being used by God to bring you to a place of repentance, to bring you into a deeper relationship with you? You know, I told a friend this week, I said, I don't care what your situation is. Not to be harsh, not to be mean with you. I, I don't care what it is, but what I do care about is how you respond in your affliction. You cannot complain. You cannot moan. That's biblical. The Bible says we don't complain. We see Paul who, who went through so much. He went through so much hard, hardship and heartache. And he doesn't stop complaining. I mean, I'm sorry, he doesn't, he doesn't start complaining. He, he praises God and he points people to God. In the same way, when Jesus is being crucified on the cross, you don't see him bemoaning. You don't see him complaining. He looks down at the people and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is on the lips of the Messiah. Because he sees, he sees it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he knew that his crucifixion and his hardship was going to birth the salvation of millions. Is it possible that God has put something hard in your life so that you can turn to him? That you can turn away from Moab and turn to Bethlehem, the place of bread? The good news, though, is God is so gracious that he doesn't just use affliction, does he? Sometimes he uses just grace. He'll use Affliction under repentance and then kindness under repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, which one would you like? The affliction or the kindness? I, I'm like, Lord, kind all day long. Be kind to me. Be merciful to me. And hopefully that's what draws us is the kindness and the goodness, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus to repentance. So let me, let me ask a couple questions at this point. Number one, what do you need to repent of? Remember, I said the life of the believer is a life of repentance. So the answer is nothing. That, that the answer is, is you can't say nothing. All of us have something. What ways have you played in Moab rather than Bethlehem? Where have you sought false blessings from the world? Where have you sought to build your own kingdom rather than waiting on God to build his own kingdom? One commentator says, like believers in the Old Testament times, we continue to struggle in this area of repentance. Often we exhibit a fundamental lack of trust in God's goodness. Perhaps we complain about the job God has given us or the spouse that we married or the family or the lack of family that God in his providence has allotted to us. And we fantasize about greener fields elsewhere. Perhaps we have to confess that we have even turned our back on the Lord's ways and we've journeyed into the fields of Moab that seem to offer better bread. We're called to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, to love our neighbors, to redeem the time, to be people of grace in our speech. What ways have you not honored God in that? What ways do you need to repent? What, what mindsets have to change and what attitudes have to change and what actions should change? Some of you don't serve, not because you don't feel called to serve, but because you're being lazy. 
Some of you don't pray because you're lazy. That needs to be repented of. When we look at the goodness of life, the goodness that God has given us, it should bring something to us that says, I, I want to respond to this. That's, that's the behavior. Something about the goodness of God always brings us to response. Notice when, when Naomi becomes God conscious, what does she do? It's very simple. She arose. She got up and she did something. So that's question number one. Question number two, remember now, there's changing, there's turning away, there's things we have to repent of, but we're never left back here. We have to progress forward. We have to take ground. So the next question is, what does it look like for you to move closer to the Lord? What ways do you need to change your thinking and your behavior? And what ways do you need to start moving closer to God? What ways can you confess your sins? What ways can you believe greater in God? What behaviors can you change? What ways can you serve? For some of you, it might be just a step of, of, of going, hey, you know what? I, I, I got to move from being isolated to a place of community, which is in the text. As Naomi's repenting, she's in this conversation with her two daughter-in-laws who so far to this point do not believe in Yahweh as far as we know. They're Moabite women. And what we see on this little path here is, is she says, okay, I'm going to Moab, and she tells the daughter-in-law, she says, go back to your home country, find a husband, and have babies. One of the daughter-in-laws actually will do that, and Ruth, the, who the book's named after, will go with Naomi. And I believe it's evidence to show us that when we return back to God and to drive deeper into God, you can't do it alone. You have to have community. You have to be in relationship with somebody. You have to have people in your life that know you intimately, who walk with you intimately, and still love you in spite of all the ways that you're not a good person. You have to have it. That's why even in a church our size, we have community groups. It's not just so you can become deeper in your theological training. It's, so, it's a way to, to combat and to fight against the way the world tells us to isolate ourselves and to stick our faces in a phone and not learn uh, how to really speak with one another. So we've got to fight against it. So maybe for some of you, it's, it's jumping out of that isolation and into service. There's two ways to get into community. Number one, you can go to a community group. I lead one on Thursdays. More than welcome to come. Wayne leads one. Doug Brown leads one. There's several. We've got a whole board full of places where you can go to be in relationships with people. The other one you can do is you can serve. I've been harping on this every now and then, haven't I? What is serving? You, you get, serving is serving God for the glory of God for somebody else next to other people. Right? If you show up on our work day, you're going to have to work with somebody else. And when you work with somebody else, they do it differently than you do. Then what? Then you're like, I ain't going to work day next, week, next year. Because, right? you know, hey, I'll be honest with you. I've said it before as an introverted person. Being in a community group, being around people, being a pastor, <laughs> it's God constantly taking me out of my comfort zone to, to build relationships. And I can tell you, my life would be very dark if God hadn't forced me and pushed me and still pushes me into community with people. So I'm just, saying, I'm just saying this because repentance is work. It's going to take effort. But do you believe that Jesus is worth that effort? 
The worship and the praise is that effort. I told you we're going to learn two major theological things this morning. The first one was repentance. Everyone say repentance. All right, I just made you say that to make sure you were awake. Jeff's my intern. If you need coffee. Thank you. <laughs> the first one, repentance. The second one is God's providence. It's all over the book. Verse 6, we see, we see it says, remember the first time so far in this particular uh, book of the Bible, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God gave them food. The second thing is God's providence. We talked about this in week one as a major theme of the book of Ruth. God's providence literally means that God is working behind the scenes always. Verse after verse in the Bible tells us God commanded all kinds of small things to great things. God at one point in the Bible commands ravens to feed an individual. He appoints a plant and a whale and Jonah as as well as a worm, swarms of flies, all kinds of places you find God's providence, that God is working. And here's the good news in Ruth. He's working behind the scenes in Ruth and he's working behind the scenes in your life too. Even if you're not aware of it, he is active. He is not passive ever. Now, remember, I shared with you some old, really wise, dead people who shared some great wisdom. We're going to do the same with providence as well. From the Heidelberg Catechism. In regards to providence, it reads like this. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It goes on to read, why is this good news? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust and a faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, and without his will they cannot so much as move. God's providence is good news. It means no matter how ugly it gets, it's still for our good and still for his glory, and in the end we know our king is victorious. Now tying in with providence, God has a way of using small, insignificant things to bring about amazing, significant things. In this particular story, we learn that we should not, in God's providence, despise small beginnings. Jesus was born in this little town of Bethlehem. What seems to be a few common women on a path to a new city becomes one of the biggest, largest historical events for all of mankind. In Bethlehem, Ruth will give birth to Obed. Through Obed will come Jesse. Through Jesse will come David, who will be born in Bethlehem. And then Jesus will eventually come from the lineage of David. The Messiah comes through the lineage of this story. Small, insignificant thing becomes a significant thing. This is the hope I want to leave you with as we, as we conclude with tying everything into Palm Sunday. 
Remember, I share with you Palm Sunday is the story of Jesus being coronated as king. Luke chapter 19. You can turn there if you'd like. In verse 28, you can kind of look at the text with me and as I kind of just overview it a little bit, but if you remember leading up to this point, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It tells us in the beginning that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem specifically so that he can die. Jerusalem, all along in all of the Gospels, is the concluding point of Jesus' death. Everything's pointing to this place. And when he drew near there, he goes to his disciples and he tells his disciples, listen, I want you to go to a village. There's a particular village, and in this village, you're going to find in a particular house a colt. You're going to find a donkey. And he, he even ties in this reality of the donkey. No one's ever even sat on the donkey. And I just want you to, you know, essentially what he's telling the disciples to do is to go into a village, to go to a man's house, and to steal a donkey. And the reason I, I use that language is because he says, he says, he says, if anyone happens to ask you, why are you untying that man's donkey? So he knows that someone's going to go, this is odd. That's not your donkey. That's Bill's donkey. Why are you leaving with Bill's donkey? And when they ask the question, he says, tell them, you tell them the Lord has need of it. It is like a Jedi mind trick. <laughs> the Lord needs the donkey. Okay, Bob's cool with the donkey. This is obviously me putting my translation into it. He, but the spirit is obviously involved in it. God needs it. And then they do something I don't think they're even aware of doing. In verse 35, the donkey comes, they take their cloaks, and they put their cloaks on the donkey. This is a custom from First and Second Kings of enthroning the king. And if you note in the text of Luke that he literally, they literally set Jesus on the donkey. Jesus doesn't mount the donkey. He's being placed upon the donkey. All of this, all of this is reflecting back to the book of Kings that Jesus is being coronated as the great king and the Messiah. And he rides into town on this common donkey. He comes into, he comes into Jerusalem riding Bob's donkey. It's not a great donkey. I don't know about you, but if, if you were to be enthroned king, is this how you would come into your new city? Would you come in on a little humble horse? And as he comes in, the people cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory on the, uh, uh, on the highest. They're singing praises. The people are recognizing that this is the Messiah, which is interesting because we're going to see on Friday it's the same people who cry crucify him and give us Barabbas instead. People are fickle in their worship. They always have been. And he rides in on that donkey, and the disciples are crying out, and the people are crying out, and the Pharisees, in verse 39 in the crowd, say to him, rebuke your disciples. See, the Pharisees knew. They're claiming you're the Messiah. They're claiming that you're God. Tell them to shut up. This is heresy. And Jesus responds, well, if I did, even the very stones would cry out. And then in verse 41, when he drew near on the donkey and he saw the city, he wept over it. He cried. Alistair Begg, in regards to this 
insignificant donkey says the donkey is quite significant. What seems to be a common animal is used to coronate the Lord. I was listening to a message that Beg gave on this, and he says, he said, this donkey is so significant that many churches produce a donkey at their church services on a Sunday. He says, I don't know why they do that. I have enough trouble with the donkeys in the pews without having a donkey outside the place. <laughs> now, just as we see with the prodigal son, the only time we see God is in a hurry and repentance, the only time that we see Jesus riding on anything is here. Everywhere else, he's walking. I want you to know a couple things in regards to this that are important about God's providence and his goodness that leads us to repentance. Number one, notice he's completely in control. God is sovereign over all of it. There's a particular town, a particular donkey, and a particular place. I'm going to ride it. I'm going to enter into the city. Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, in regards to this, says, Shortly before all this, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man and by the prophets will be accomplished. He's literally saying, all of this has been planned. All of it has been planned from the beginning. What this means is the betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spit, the flogging, the murder, all of it was planned. Another way of saying it is the resistance, the rejection, unbelief, hostility. None of it was a surprise to Jesus. In fact, they're all part of his plan, and he says so. Can I just share with you whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with, whatever sin you need to be repented of, whatever attitude you have that is wrong, whatever situation in your life that, that is just uncomfortable to you, can we just say amen to the reality that Jesus is aware of it and he is not surprised? He is not caught off guard. He's well aware of your circumstance and your situation. The other thing I want you to see that is important here is Jesus' identity. Jesus is making the statement that he is king. Coming in on a donkey, he's literally fulfilling Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. And he shall speak to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from, ri- from the river to the ends of the earth. At this time, you know what Matthew says about riding in on the donkey? This time of the Passover, it says that all of Jerusalem was, was stirred. When Jesus was born in little Bethlehem, it tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled. This is ultimately what we're praying for when people hear the message of Jesus Christ that there would be a stirring about Jesus. I asked you to pray last week for Easter. I asked you to pray again that that something would stir within the Tahoe Basin area. Something about the Spirit would move as it did in Genesis over the waters of Lake Tahoe, that, that something about this idea of who Jesus is and being in relationship with him and being forgiven of sins and, and why did he have to die on the cross for me? Why did he have to be resurrected from the dead? And that people will be stirred and moved and their attitudes and their minds and their actions would, would place them into a, a place in one of our churches in the Tahoe area. But we're not praying that people will get saved just at SBC, are we? 
We're not that ignorant to think that we're it. There needs to be more churches than just a church, one church in a spot. We're all part of God's kingdom. And, and what we want to happen on Sunday is we want every church in the Tahoe area and beyond to boldly proclaim the goodness of who God is and that God through his spirit would bring those people to repentance. Yeah? Easter's a big deal for us. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. And we celebrate it because it happened. And it's because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who has the power and ability to bring people to salvation. My friends, he has the ability to save people still. I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, does it? But he can. Third thing I want you to see in verse 39 through 40 when the Pharisees say, tell him to shut up, is that even if we shut up, God will still be worshiped. Think of this for a moment. One pastor said, John Piper, he can make praise come from rocks. And so he could do the same from rock hard hearts in Jerusalem. Like I said, he can bring salvation. He can soften the heart of that person that you know should be here. And they're not coming. That person, you're like, they'll never become a Christian. Some of you are that person in the room right now. And I know that. I've had people share with me over the weeks, yeah, you know, so-and-so has been coming to church. They don't claim to be a Christian. They're not following Jesus. And if that happens to be you this morning, guess what? God can soften your heart and bring you to a place of salvation, and you'll finally know what it is to be alive. You'll finally know what it is to feel love, and you'll finally know what it is to give love. He will be praised. Amen? And then lastly, notice the necessity of his grace. We need it. I mean, he, he is in complete self-denial. He could have came riding a dragon, but he rode Bob's donkey. And he, he, he's self-denying. And, and notice, I want you to see, as he looks over the city, he weeps. He looks over Jerusalem and he weeps. So, so let me just add this to your condition and your sin. Not only is Jesus aware of it, but it moves his heart. There's this ability that God has to be more joyous and more happy and more glorious than we could ever imagine, but he's also stirred. Do you think Jesus rejoices at the suffering of anybody? No. He's weeping over your sin right now. He's weeping over that friend that you have that doesn't know him. He's weeping over the marriages in our church that are not healthy. He's weeping over the prodigal children that you have in your life that have run away from the Lord. They've run away from church. They want nothing to do with God. He weeps. God is brokenhearted over our sin, and he's brokenhearted over all of the things that damage us and ruin us. And the incredible news is he cares enough to actually do something about it. And so this week he rides into Jerusalem and he dies on the cross to bring resolution to all of the things we need a resolution to, to bring peace to the war we sometimes feel in our hearts. God is so good, and he's been good to Naomi. He's going to be even greater to Ruth. She's going to find marriage in a man, and she's going to find something even better. She's going to find salvation. Let he do the same for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much 
that this week we get to celebrate the radical reality, Lord, that you walked into a city with the intention to die. And then you accomplished that, Lord. You died on our behalf. I pray that that loving act of graciousness and kindness would move us to a place of repentance and a place of praise because we know you're in control of all things. Help us this morning to see you. And for those of us who don't see you, Lord, we've never seen you, help us to see you for the first time right now. Would you bring sinners to salvation? Would you bring saints into closer proximity to you and to sanctify them in your truth? Your word has gone out. It's gone forth. You've provided the thing that is necessary to help us, Lord, to move in the right direction. What a great grace it is. We trust you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.